IBN is proud to bring you the following podcast. Welcome to Deconstructed. I'm T.J. O'Hara, the Principal Political Analyst for IBN, the Independent Voter News. Our goal on Deconstructed is to break down important political issues with outstanding guests so you can develop your own more informed opinion. My guest today is Bill Shireman, a person of many talents. He's an author, a social entrepreneur, an environmental policy innovator, and somewhat of an endangered species, a self-proclaimed San Francisco Republican. He also teaches leadership and negotiations at the UC Berkeley Haas Business School. In the private sector, Mr. Shireman is president and founder of Future 500, a nonprofit that strives to build trust between companies, advocates, investors, and philanthropists to advance business as a force for good. In the political sector, Mr. Shireman is the surrogate founder of Bridge USA, a youth-led nonprofit organization that creates spaces on high school and college campuses for open discussions between students about political issues. And he's the co-founder of In This Together, which is a campaign to bring together common sense problem solvers who have been marginalized by the politics of fear, anger, and division. Earlier this year, Mr. Shireman ran as a Republican for state assembly in California's top two primary for District 17, which covers a major portion of San Francisco. Obviously, he's not afraid of a challenge. He joins me today to talk about another challenge, how he hopes to empower an independent common sense majority over the next few years. So without further ado, welcome to Deconstructed, Bill. Thank you. I am so pleased to be here, TJ. Well, Bill, you're a self-professed San Francisco Republican, which leads me to ask, are you on drugs or do you just like to bring together people who love to hate each other? Capitalists, activists, conservatives, progressives, you name it. Well, I guess I'm a little bit of a provocateur or a contrarian. I think I'm a San Francisco confessed Republican as opposed to a professed one. And, you know, you don't get a lot of positive vibes in San Francisco if you're a Republican. But I think that it's necessary for people to, first of all, be in the Republican Party to provide an alternative perspective from the common one that we hear from the media generated party and that we also provide an alternative for the progressive viewpoint that is dominant in the Democratic side. So I like to be a little bit different and shake things up a bit. I mentioned that you hope to empower an independent common sense majority over the next few years. Is your In This Together campaign the basis for your strategy? Yeah, you know, well, America appears to be more divided than ever. And that appearance is leading to that reality, certainly. But the reality is still that in between the extreme voices that we hear are about 70% of us who are really common sense pragmatists. We are trying to get problems solved in our daily lives and when we enter them into politics. The problem is that 70% common sense majority what I would call independent-minded voters, are divided in two. And we take the blue half of those voters and we put them in a box over here and we amplify the very worst of what red America has to say about them. And then we take the red half of the reasonable majority and we put them in a box over here and we amplify the very worst of what blue America says about them. And that keeps Americans divided in two separate media silos. And as long as we are divided into those silos, the middle 70% can't get together to form a governing majority. And that's a very good thing for special interests 
not really for the special interests we're used to thinking about, big corporations, big unions, and so on, but it's very good for the political power brokers who would rather be in the position of managing the $4.5 trillion budget that we put forward in our tax dollars every year and extracting money from vested interests for their industries. That's the problem that we face. And that's what we're trying to do within this together. Beyond the media controlling that narrative and the parties participating in that, why do the 70% of Americans that you reference, and I would agree that's probably the percentage, why do we accept that? Because we have no idea really what's going on. You know, how many people these days think that they're the only reasonable ones left in the country? I mean, so many people these days, they look at politics and they think, I'm a Republican, but I'm not the kind of Republican who's going to storm the Capitol. On the other hand, these Democrats are all crazy extremists, socialists, and communists because that's what I hear on my media. And then if you're in the reasonable left, you're looking out there at the same thing saying, well, I'm not as crazy as the folks who you know want to open the borders and let everybody in and open the prisons and let everybody out. But all those Trump people are crazy. They're out taking over the Capitol and so on. People are led to believe by the media chambers that were inside that the reasonable people have all gone away. And in fact, reasonable people don't like to talk about politics because they will get pointed at for having reasonable views that don't adhere to either extreme. So we need to empower that middle 70% and let people know that there are reasonable people across the aisle. Now, you've just gone through a primary, and the primaries contribute to the extremism in that they attract the extreme element to that particular type of election because they're more zealous about their positions and so forth. So they provide the money, they provide the votes, and the candidates that get attracted tend to pander to those extremes. How do you overcome that? The only way to overcome that is to carve out that middle 70% and in competitive districts. Now, this is not a competitive district here in San Francisco, but there are 15 swing states across the country where races are actually competitive. And the key to activating the independent 70% out there that is waiting to take its role as the governing majority, the way to activate them is to organize about 5% of those folks in those swing states. Because once we have a solid 5% block of free range voters who could go for either party, then they decide the outcome of the election. And the candidates need to speak to the middle majority rather than right now, when they speak more and more to a smaller and smaller extreme to get those final red and blue voters to the polls. And is that the objective as you would define it for In This Together, that particular organization? Our objective is to create a climate of unity in those 15 swing states where Republicans and Democrats overwhelmingly say it's time to solve problems and we are dedicating our dollars and our votes only to leaders and to businesses that are about problem solving, not polarization. So in those communities, our objective is to recruit a 5% base of voters, not to vote for any particular candidate, but to make it known that they will vote for the candidate who is the best problem solver when it comes to the climate issue and other issues that we care about. 
As you build your grassroots core, are you asking them to pledge their dollars as well as their votes? And if that's the case, how do you direct them to identify the problem solvers as opposed to those who would polarize us? Mm -hmm. Well, the candidates are really in the position to join our coalition, if you will. We don't endorse candidates, but we ask candidates to come forward with solutions on climate and other key issues, and then we communicate their solutions to the voting base. But not just any voters, we focus on that middle 70% of voters who are open to actual problem solving. So we take what the candidates say, and we hold them to it, and we communicate that information to the voters, and then the voters can decide. You use a wonderful phrase, America's silenced majority, not the silent majority, but silenced majority. Crystallize what that means to you. You know, the political industry has fallen into a very destructive business model. The political industry, by the way, these are the power brokers, lobbyists, message makers, pollsters, opinion leaders, and so on. Now, these are not bad people for the most part. They're really just good people trying to do good things, but operating in a business model where they thrive by dividing the public. And the way they divide the public is if you are working on the red side, then you take the worst of the blue and you amplify that message and you scare your red voters to pieces so that they will all coalesce on your side and not challenge your party. And if you're in the blue side, the same is true in reverse. That's the business model. Having profited so much from creating a community of hard right and hard left voters and bringing everybody into those, they've now created two giant media audiences. And the news media has now built its business model around serving those two audiences. So the political industry has set us up for an advertising industry that is dependent on making us hate each other. So this is why we say it's important for voters in the middle to use their dollars and their votes to give the advantage to problem solvers. We use our votes by only voting for candidates that are pledged to be problem solvers and then behave that way when they're elected. We use our dollars by gradually asking advertisers to only advertise on media that are bringing us together, not media that are polarizing us. Bill, we're gonna take a quick break and talk more about how you plan to empower an independent common sense majority in our country when we come back. The National Association of Nonpartisan Reformers is the only association of nonpartisan election reform leaders, organizations, and industry professionals dedicated to increasing electoral competition and voter choice. Learn more at nonpartisanreformers.org. Welcome back. My guest today is Bill Shireman, an author, a lecturer on leadership and negotiations at UC Berkeley, and a political activist to the nth degree. Bill, you have a fairly strong background as an environmental policy innovator. How has that influenced you on the political side? Well, you know, when I was very, very young and I became very concerned about the environment, this is like 10 and 12 years old, I, like most people, I looked out there and I said, well, who are the evil forces that are causing this environmental collapse? And I saw the oil companies. And so I focused my activist efforts on stopping the big oil companies and circulated petitions and, you know, did events and so on to be a part of that campaign. Over time, I began to realize that the enemies were not as clear cut as I thought they were. 
And so when I became the leader of an environmental group here in California to pass a California bottle bill, rather than just carrying out a war against my enemies, I actually sat down with my enemies and using a little pressure and a little, you know, diplomacy was able to secure their support for what we wanted to do and learned corporate power dynamics and learned union and political activist power dynamics and learned how to get solutions to happen. So about 12 years ago, I was working between ExxonMobil and Greenpeace, and we worked out a federal carbon tax that if adopted at that time would have put us way ahead on driving carbon down to the levels and below that we're looking to get to now. We've had 12 years that we could have had that in operation. We came to agreement, Greenpeace and ExxonMobil agreed to the very same carbon tax proposal federally, but it went nowhere. And it went nowhere, not because big oil opposed it and not because environmentalists didn't support it, but because the issue of climate had become owned not by the combatants, but by the media and political industries. It is simply too profitable in politics to hold solutions to issues like abortion, guns, immigration, race, and climate, hold them hostage because they are so effective as wedge issues that effectively divide voters into these two giant boxes. And so even if there's a desire to deal with those issues, it's always the next election that the political industry looks to, and it's never the right time to solve the problem. And so that's what we face with climate right now. When we ask CEOs to go into lawmakers' offices and say, it's okay to deal with the climate crisis now, what we hear back from those CEOs very often is that they are shuttled aside to a strategist who says, well, it's fine and good for you to want to solve the climate problem, but we need you aboard on our narrative. And our narrative right now is job-killing EPA. We need you on that narrative. And that's what enables us to be there for you when you need us on tax codes and contract policies and so on. And unfortunately, that shuts down real action. So in order to overcome that problem, we need to eliminate climate as a wedge issue in politics and begin to get the people on both sides advocating solutions. And this together has three steps. And the first one is to make it politically advantageous for Republican and Democrat candidates to support the bipartisan climate of unity agenda. So can you describe in detail what the climate of unity agenda is about and how do you convince Republicans and Democrats that it's advantageous for them to follow it? We help fund a process called America in One Room, which is the largest deliberative democracy poll and experience in history. It was carried out by Stanford University last September, a year ago, and by University of Chicago. And in that, we brought together 962 Americans online. We divided them into groups of 10. We surveyed their opinions on energy and climate. And the initial opinions followed the partisan talking points right? If you're a Republican, you tended to express views that followed the Republican narrative. If you're a Democrat, you tended to follow the Democratic narrative. Then the folks spent about 10 hours online with each other 
building a relationship, learning about the issue, hearing from experts, studying, debating, and so on. And by the end, when they were re-polled, all of their positions had shifted from partisan positions to fact-based positions. And what we found was that well over 70% of Americans agree on the fundamental solutions that are most important to deal with climate. We agree, number one, that we need to conserve the planet. We need to protect oceans and forests and land and the health of our soils. That's number one, overwhelming support. Number two, support for clean energy choices. Not big mandates that require that everything be solar and wind, for example, or that everything be electric, but options across the board, clean energy options across the board, solar and wind and oil and gas with carbon capture and nuclear and hydrogen and electrification, especially in transportation. People want choices. And then the third thing they want is they want the incentives to match the need. So they would like to have incentives that help marginalized communities who have been suffering the consequences of a fossil fuel economy. And they want support for communities making transitions. And they want support for industries that are driving the transition. So these are the things that folks support. The Climate of Unity agenda is a general agenda that packages those into an agenda that both Republicans and Democrats can support. And that's what we're looking for support by representatives on all sides. How do you shift the competition from a contest between hyperpartisan extremists to a choice between different kinds of solutions that are fact-based? In order to do that, you got to change the incentives in the district. You have to create what we call a climate of unity. That is, right now, in highly competitive districts, elections are won by each candidate appealing to the very most extreme views in their district to get those final votes that put them over the edge. They don't compete generally for the middle. Seems like they would, but it's easier and more clear for them to compete for the very most extreme voters because they know that if they get those voters to the polls, there's only one party they're going to vote for. If you're extreme blue, you're always going to vote for the Democrat. If you're extreme red, you're always going to vote for the Republican, even if you don't like their candidates much. So they spend their money appealing to the extremes. That means that if you're a Republican, you can't even utter the word climate unless you're in a position to deny the problem. What we have done in a series of districts where we've brought our climate of unity campaign is to create a climate of unity in the middle. That is create a community of voters and leaders who ask their politicians to support solutions on climate, no matter whether they are Republicans or Democrats, not to polarize on that issue, but to problem solve. And their votes are contingent on that. That changes the culture of the campaign. And it requires that the candidates, if they want to win, it requires that they speak to that broad middle of the population. And so that's been successful in seven of eight cases so far, and we hope to bring that to eight competitive states this November. Bill, we're going to take another quick break and talk more about how you plan to empower an independent common sense majority in our country when we come back. Looking for an insider's perspective? Join IVN's principal political analyst, Dr. T.J. O'Hara, as he deconstructs America's most pressing issues with notable guests from across the political spectrum. Subscribe to Deconstructed for fresh perspectives and no partisan spin. Welcome back. 
My guest today is Bill Shireman, an author and political activist who founded Bridge USA to encourage young Americans to engage in civil political discourse and co-founded In This Together to create a platform for independent, common-sense voters to have a voice. Bill, you talked about some of the premises behind the campaign of In This Together. Let's talk about the battleground states. You briefly mentioned that there were battleground states. Can you go into detail? Who are they? Where are they? And how do you intend to leverage them to try and create this movement? As you well know, the political parties, the dominant political parties, have structured primaries and elections to keep the parties in control, sometimes to keep a particular party in control, and other times when the overall party shifts every 10 years with the census to at least ensure that the party, rather than individual candidates, and certainly the people, are in control. And you do that with gerrymandering, so you draw districts that are essentially gifted to one party or the other. And you hold primaries that are only open to registered members of a particular party. And what that means is that in a district that is gerrymandered for one party, where the party primary is closed, then only the most extreme voters are the ones most likely to vote. And you end up with candidates that are, that are nominated who only have 10, 15% support from the district. And voters on both sides are given only that choice, only choices of candidates that are just not very good. That's what we have nationally, and that's what we have in most states. Well, fortunately, there are some states in which elections are still competitive, and there are about 15 of these states, eight of them that we're focused on, Arizona, Colorado, Iowa, Maine, Minnesota, New Hampshire, Nevada, and Wisconsin. We're focused on those because they are the smallest population of the 15 swing states. And they are states where if we can generate a community of independent voters who are from that silenced majority, who will dedicate their votes, pledge their votes only for candidates who are problem solvers, then we can change the political dynamics in those states. And when we do, that changes political dynamics nationally. It means that rather than pandering to the extremes on the far left and the far right, the candidates need to speak to the middle because that's where elections are decided. You mentioned that some of those states have smaller populations. Does that make it easier to influence the change, a smaller group of people to whom to message? Or in some regards, does that make it more complex because it doesn't create the bandwidth you need at a national level? Well, our plan is to focus on those eight states in the first year, that is this year, 2022 and 2023, and then expand to 15 in 2024. So we're learning the process in the seven districts that we were active in this last session. Now we're expanding to those eight states. And once we master that, then we'll move on to the 15 states and bring in about 5 million voters across those 15 states. That gives us a strong, decisive middle that chooses the winners. How will you define success? Success is primarily if both major candidates who are battling each other are climate problem solvers. That's what we want from this, that the parties, instead of battling between an extremist on one side that denies the problem and an extremist on the other side that demands too extreme a solution to have both the Republican and the Democrat come forward committed 
to genuine climate problem solving and committed ultimately to bipartisan solutions. That's the victory for us. How do you determine whether the political polarization is measurably reduced? By who you elect and what they stand for. And it's primarily, are they pandering to extremes? Are they depending on those extremist voters and polarizing with that? Or are they beginning to speak to that broad middle? That's what we're looking for, are ones that speak to the broad center. Do you think your organization will be able in those states to prove that problem solvers can be protected in the current environment from extremists in the primaries? You know, we've demonstrated that in the districts that we've been active in already in uh, California, in some very conservative districts where Republicans were running against each other. We helped to create an environment where candidates needed to compete to offer the best solutions. And so instead of having candidates that deny the existence of the problem, we now had candidates who were competing to put the best solutions on the table. And the candidates that put solutions on the table are the ones that won in the top two primary. So now voters actually have a choice between a Democrat and a Republican, both of whom are climate problem solvers, but they're putting different ideas on the table and the voters can choose. You're in an interesting environment today. I was reading recently, Senator Schumann's PAC contributed over a million dollars to somebody who was considered to be a ultra MAGA candidate Mm -hmm. to try and set them up in the last primary that's being held. And when you have that type of a thing where you have the opposing party supporting someone they believe to be an extremist or, to use President Biden's words, a semi-fascist. So you have the Democratic Party supporting a semi-fascist in the primary. How do you Mm -hmm. prevent that money from trying to crush any initiative you have? That's why you need this strategy of reaching out and bringing in voters that pledge their support for problem solvers rather than polarizers. Take a look at the district in California. So the race between David Valadeo and Chris Mathis. Now, Chris Mathis was a climate denier and a very strong pro-Trump Republican. And David Valadeo was a and is a strong conservative who actually brings real solutions to the table. In that race, David Valadeo became only one of 10 House Republicans who voted for impeachment who actually survived a pro-Trump challenger in his race. That's almost unprecedented, and essentially it is unprecedented, except for that case this election year. So David Valadeo, now as a problem solver, is the candidate of the Republican Party in that district, and he will face Rudy Salas, another problem solver, in the general election. That's a good outcome for democracy. It didn't require that we support any candidate. It required that we ask voters to commit that they're going to support problem solvers, and then we let the candidates decide who's going to be a problem solver and who's not. So it's up to the candidates to make that decision. Now, in that race, the phenomenon that you're talking about actually did happen. There were a lot of folks who pledged money to the more extreme candidate in the hope that they would have a weakened candidate who would be nominated. Now, that's their right, but it's a political trick, and it helps to populate the extremism that then ends up as voting majority in our House and in our Senate, and we can't afford to do that in the long run. 
Bill, in the limited amount of time we have left, where can our listeners go to learn more about you and all of your political endeavors and potentially get involved? You know, we would love them to join our Climate of Unity campaign. That's at climateofunity.org and just pledge to use your dollars and your votes to support the politicians and the businesses that are committed to problem solving. You can visit our full site at inthisarca.org and sign on there, uh, or just come to climateofunity.org and make your pledge. We'd love to have you as a part of the campaign. Bill Shireman, author, lecturer, serial entrepreneur and activist, and an unbridled optimist who sees the world as it can be and refuses to let it go until the world opens its eyes. You have a huge obstacle to overcome, but if anyone can do it, It's someone who describes himself as a San Francisco Republican. Bill, thank you for sharing your thoughts and enthusiasm with us today. And thank you again for joining me on Deconstructed. Thank you, TJ. This podcast is brought to you by IVN.us, an open news platform for independent-minded authors and readers. If you like what you hear, make sure to subscribe to IVN.us where you listen to podcasts. On SoundCloud, iTunes, Stitcher, Acast, or iHeartRadio.